0: i hey. This is the day for a new beginning I'll make the praise are sweet and the sound Oh can't we hear all the angels listening again? This is the day, the day when life begins Have no fear Salvation has come and tears here Salvation has come and he is here. Have no Takes the day for a new beginning. Amazing grace, how so sweet the sound.
1: Good morning and welcome. We are glad to see you all here at the Houghton Wesleyan Church. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together.
0: your voice and with us sing Father, we join with all creation in worshiping you. You are holy and loving.
2: You are mighty and good. We praise you for your
1: presence here with us. We thank you for the gift of your spirit, our holy comforter, who intercedes for us with
0: groans that words cannot express, and who calls us and leads us in paths deeper, in trust, and reliance on you. Amen. You call me out upon the water. and Steve. down some deepest waters, the sun. stand beside you. I'm all around you. Though you feel I'm far away, I'm closer than
1: Good morning. Scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering... Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And now chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and and Pomphylia, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine.
2: I want to mention to you as we uh, continue in worship the things in your bulletin. Tonight, small groups begin. Koinonia also takes place tonight in the chapel. And uh, we are still look, we're looking for some help with our food pantry. Uh, to see a list of things in the bulletin. And if you're interested in being involved in ministry, uh, using gifts and talents that you have, we are always excited to have uh, your involvement in ministry, whether you're a college student or academy student or you're here year-round. Uh, your involvement is important to us, and it's important to you to use the gifts God's given you. As we continue worship, let me invite you to stand, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. A few years ago, Dan Kimball wrote a book with an intriguing title. They like Jesus, but not the church. It was based on a number of interviews that he did with students at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He talked to a whole lot of students, who many of them who had no connection to the Christian faith, and talked to them about Jesus. What he found so fascinating was that when they talked about Jesus, their faces lit up. They they couldn't say enough good things about Jesus. They had great affinity for Jesus. They just thought Jesus was the greatest person in the world. But when the conversation turned to the church, so did the spirit and the attitude of the people he was talking to. Now, Now from them came things like the church just messed everything up. The, uh, the church has, has taken Jesus' life and made it dogmatic rules. The Christians ought to be taken out back and shot. That's getting a little personal. Annie Dillard says that uh, it's too bad that on the backs of Jesus came the church. There is this sense in our culture that Jesus is good, the church not so much. And maybe you've had those same experiences. Maybe you feel them even now. I've gone through that where I've thought, I I, I want to follow Jesus. I'm just not sure I want to be connected to the church. But here's the problem with that. Jesus is irrevocably connected to the church. Over and over again, the scriptures tell us, remind us, show us that Jesus and the church are connected. The church is called the bride of Christ. The church are Christ's people. Jesus himself says to the disciples in Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church. And Paul writes to the Ephesians and talks about Christ who is the head of the church and to the Colossians, Christ the head of the church. And we see this over and over again that you cannot separate Christ and the church even though we try to do so. Now, I know why we do that. It's because the church sometimes doesn't look anything like Jesus. And here's the thing we have to keep in mind is that the, the fact that so many people outside of the church have this kind of perspective of the church, it's not their fault. It's our fault. We're the ones who have created the, the scenarios and the images and, and the perception of who we are of, as the church and my concern is that what are we going to do about it it seems to me if we're going to be people who change the attitude and the spirit of how people view the church which subsequently is ultimately going to be how they view god and jesus and their relationship to god and jesus then we need to figure out how we can change that perspective and i think it starts by going all the way back to the very beginning of the church The book of Acts tells us about the beginning of the church. The whole book of Acts, it's not so much a history of the church as it is an account that gives us glimpses into the church. And when you look at the glimpses that we get, what we find is that God takes a group of people where they are and moves them more and more, closer and closer, to where he intends them to be. And the thing about the book of Acts is that it's not just about the church in the first century. It's about the church in the 21st century. It's about us. Because I am convinced that what God wants for us is to take us where we are and to move us toward what he intended us to be. And that's why over the course of these next few months we're going to be talking about the church. And and if you haven't yet picked up one of these bookmarks there's someone on the back table. Take one. And it'll tell, get a sense of where we're going with this and how we're talk, what we're going to talk about as we go through the book of Acts. But it, it begins with acknowledging that this is where we are. And sometimes that's hard for us to do because that means we have to admit that we're not perfect. We haven't arrived. Now, if I were to ask you, do you think the church is perfect? You would say no. But if I were to ask you, do you think the church presents an image of perfection, you might say yes. I mean, what do we think about when we think about the church? We, we have a sense that the church has all the answers. We've figured everything out. We expect people to, to have their lives together when they come to the church. This is a place where we may not be perfect, but we expect perfectionism. And the whole point of saying this is where we are is acknowledging we haven't arrived yet. We have a long way to go. We are a group of people who are sinners. Hopefully sinners who've been touched by the grace of God, but sinners nonetheless. And people who continue to struggle with sin individually and corporately. We mess up. We make mistakes. We misrepresent Jesus all the time. We are people who wrestle with all the sins in one way or another. When you put us all together... Lying, cheating, lust, selfish ambition, dissension, envy, jealousy, greed. It's all here. And it doesn't help us to say, no, that's not true. What we need to say is, yeah, we wrestle with stuff and we want to be different. Every 12-step program begins, hi, I'm Wes, I'm a drug addict, alcoholic, whatever the case may be. And there's no reason to join the program if you can't make that statement first. It's the first step. It's sometimes the biggest step. But you can't do anything else until you've admitted, this is who I am. And the church can't go anywhere until we admit who we are. But that isn't enough. That's not the end of the program. The point of of entering a 12-step program and saying, hi, I'm Wes, I'm whatever, isn't so we just, okay, now we're done. But it's to move us towards sobriety. And the point of the church acknowledging this is what we are, this is who we are, this is, this, is the honest, uh, this is honestly what we're about, is not to just keep us there and say, well, okay, we're done with that, mediocrity, we're going to settle, we're done. It's so that now God can move us closer and closer to what he intended us to be. Because scripture says God has created the church so that to make his people holy, to make us like Christ, And that will never be completed until we get to heaven. But as we exist on this earth, we are hopefully moving closer and closer to what God intends us to be. And that's what we see in the church of the first century. That's what God is calling us. But how do we get to that? How do we move from where we are to where God intends us to be as we live in the tension between those two things? I think it's the same thing that we see in the early church. What changes it for them? What moves them off the, off the dime? It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them at the day of Pentecost, and they are different people. They are changed. They now are people of courage and of integrity and of Christ likeness. And all the stuff that they were wrestling with before, it's still there, but it's now different. It's been touched by God. And they are new people. And you and I will be new people when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and works in us and changes us. But we don't get to that by saying, let's pray for the Holy Spirit. We get to that by hungering for Jesus. When you look at the first century church, everything they talk about is Jesus. As soon as the Spirit comes, Peter starts preaching this sermon. And and, and it's an amazing sermon, and lots of people come to faith. But the whole message of his sermon is, turn to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's the hungering for Jesus that prepares us for the coming of the Spirit. The problem is, there are so many things that are good... That, but our lesser hungers that take the place of Jesus. For some of us, it is the hunger for knowledge. And knowledge is good. We need to know more and more about God, about Christ, about everything, about the kingdom of God. And we should be learning. And scripture gives us a lot to teach us. But if knowledge is our primary hunger instead of Jesus, then what we'll really be focused on is, is your theology the same as mine? You you can't. We aren't going to be able to be exist in the same church because we don't believe the same things about this stuff. And what we know becomes more important than the one we are supposed to know. On the other side of it, for some people, it's experience. I'm just looking for an experience. You know, I'm just looking for that moment when, when I really feel God. And again, experiences are a gift from God. We, we value them. They're important to us. They're often signposts and landmarks that we look back in our lives and say, we had an experience with God right there, and it was awesome. And it, and it keeps us going, and we need those. And we should, we hopefully we all have them. But the point is not to hunger for an experience. The point is to hunger for Jesus, who gives us the experience. I, mean, I, I love experiences. For me, it's often in music. And when we come and we sing Charles Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be? And we get to the third verse and it says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose forth and followed thee. I get goosebumps singing those words. In the same way, when we sing just that simple chorus, you are good, you are good. And your mercy endures forever. And those are valuable things for us to experience. But ultimately, if we seek experience rather than Jesus... Then all we 're thinking about is the next high, and we're and all we can all we're experiencing as we gather as the church is so what new experience am I going to feel today and Jesus sort of gets moved to the edges sometimes it's comfort that we're hungering for. I just want to feel secure I just want to feel uh I want everything to be. To be safe and nice. And I don't want anything to change. I don't want to feel any kind of risk. I just want to do what I want to do. What I'm comfortable with. And does God comfort us? Of course he does. It's a big part of what the spirit comes to do in our lives. But it's not to make us comfortable. God never promises to make us comfortable. Think about this this story on just the first day of Pentecost. Pentecost. There are 120 people who are gathered in, the, in that upper room when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And by the end of the day, after Peter preaches this amazing sermon and people watch what's going on, 3,000 people are added to the church. Now you talk about disrupting things. Now at first you've got 120 people and they're sitting there thinking, this is nice. This is just about the right number of people. We, kinda, we know each other. We, we've, we've spent time together. Everything is good. We're, we're family. And this is nice. And then you go 3,000 people into that mix, and everything gets disrupted. And it's no longer the way it was. And there are people who are coming into that mix who have needs. And there are people coming in that mix that have amazing gifts. And some of the 120 are saying, "Oh wait, is God going to use them more than he's using me? Are they going to take over some leadership stuff that I have had? Wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for. But the honest truth is, if you don't want things to change, if you just want comfortable, then don't hunger for Jesus. Don't, don't seek the filling of the Holy Spirit upon the church. Because that will come and it will disrupt things. And for some of us, it is the hunger for morality that takes the place of Jesus. Again, morality is good. You know, to be moral is better than to be immoral. To be good is better to be evil than evil. There's no debate about that. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about morality. But when morality is what we hunger for, we we so often become arrogant legalists. Because all we're thinking about is we make our checklist, and as long as we can mark everything off the checklist, then we're good. And that creates a spirit of arrogance in us that we're better than you because look at you, you don't do the checklist, and we are great on the checklist. Isn't, doesn't Jesus say to the Pharisees, you guys do all the right things, but your hearts aren't turned to me. And we, can, we should care about morality in our own lives and in the church and in the culture at large. It's important. But it will come off as arrogant legalism if the driving force of that isn't Jesus. We hunger for Jesus And then in hungering for Jesus, he begins to make things happen. I think one of the reasons we struggle with hungering for Jesus and allowing these lesser hungers to take his place is that that the only thing Jesus tells the disciples to do between when he ascends to heaven and when the spirit comes, the only thing Jesus tells them to do is to wait. I hate waiting. I don't know about you, but waiting is it's one of the worst things in the world. It, you know, I get so impatient with waiting And, you know, we go to the the big city, you know, of Wellsville, and we have to wait at the stoplights there. And it's like, ah. You should see me when I'm sitting out here on the road waiting for three cars to go by. It's like, really? You people can't drive any faster than that? i got places to go here. You know, we spend our lives waiting. We wait for our meal to be served. We wait for the laundry to get done. We wait for our siblings and our parents and our children and our roommates. And we wait for teachers to show up. And we wait for students to come. Our lives are about waiting. Jerry Seinfeld has this great little skit where he's talking about waiting in the doctor's office. He said, it ought to, to really bother us that, that they, they aren't even pretending anymore. What do they call it? The place you go to. It's the waiting room. You know what's going to happen when you go there. And, and, and then they call your name and you think, oh, I'm going to see the doctor now. No, you're just going to a smaller waiting room. All of life is about waiting. Waiting. And I don't know about you, but it drives me crazy. And I think one of the reasons is because I feel so out of control. When I'm waiting, I can't do anything about speeding. I can't speed up the cars that are going by. I can yell at them. I can be angry at them. But it doesn't make them go any faster. It just raises my blood pressure. And, and I, can, I can be upset with a waitress who might be slow bringing my meal, but I can't make it go any faster. Nobody wants me in the kitchen trying to cook it. And maybe that's why Jesus says the one thing is wait. Because in waiting, we learn patience. In waiting, as a group, we are bonded together. I am sure that during this 10 days when the disciples are waiting between the Ascension and the the Pentecost, they are waiting for Jesus and they're waiting for the Spirit to come and they are having conversations together. But God seems to be enamored with waiting. The psalmist writes in the 27th psalm, I will wait on the Lord. The 37th psalm, I will wait on the Lord in whom I find my hope. When Simeon is an old man, he's in the temple and Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus there to the temple and he says, Simeon had been waiting all of his life to see the promised Messiah that God has said he would get a chance to see. It's fascinating to me that in the Hebrew, the word translated wait can also be translated trust. And so in a place like Isaiah 40, those who wait, those who trust in the Lord, will renew their hope, their faith, their life. There's something about waiting that creates a spirit of humility, a spirit of patience, a spirit of trust. It prepares us. If if the Holy Spirit had come on the day that Jesus ascended, the disciples wouldn't have been ready for it. It is then the waiting period when they are tested And their patience is tested, and their trust is tested, that they get themselves in a place that now they're ready for the Spirit to come. And it's not idle waiting, it's not as if they just sit there twiddling their thumbs, staring at the wall. They're praying together, they're reading the scriptures together, they're encouraging each other, they're talking to each other, they're bonding together. And that's what we do in our waiting. Scriptures are given to us so that as we wait and prepare for God to work, for the Spirit to come, we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures and we immerse ourselves in prayer and all the spiritual disciplines that God has given us. All the means of grace, we utilize them so that when the Spirit moves, we see it, we hear it, we're ready. And when the Spirit comes, amazing things happen. When I read through this part of Acts, and you go on really through the whole book, the word that comes to my mind is uncontrollable. The Holy Spirit is uncontrollable. You see it in the second chapter when Pentecost comes, and the wind, and the flames, and there, people are speaking in tongues and languages that they've never spoken in before. And, and the other people are saying, what in the world's going on here? In fact, some of them think they're they drunk. It's so crazy, totally out of control. It's not the disciples sat back and thought, you know what, when the Holy Spirit comes, let's do this. Let's speak in tongues that we've never spoken in before. And and let's try to make some little flames and let's try to create wind because this seems like a good idea. They had no clue what was going to happen. The Holy Spirit just came and all this stuff happened and they're sitting back going, okay, let's go totally uncontrollable. And when you get to the end of chapter 2, you see the Holy Spirit uncontrolled in a more subtle way. In that last section, it says that these disciples, these followers of Jesus, were all together in one mind and one heart, reading the Scripture, praying together, eating together, and sharing with each other whatever they needed. Remember, these are the people that just a couple of months earlier were at each other's throats about who was the greatest in the kingdom. The disciples are about to come to blows with James and John for wanting to sneak in to get the best places in the kingdom. And now they can't give enough to each other. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You can't, make, you can't make up that kind of stuff. You can't manufacture that kind of stuff. It is the uncontrollable nature of the Spirit. And that's my prayer for us. It's risky. It can be frightening. It can be confusing. It can lead us down paths that we're thinking, how in the world did we get here? But it's the greatest thing in the world. Because it's the Spirit of God who loves us and who calls us and who makes us into what He wants us to be. It's what it means to be the church. John Wesley said near the end of his life that his greatest fear was not that Methodism would cease to exist in America or Europe, his greatest fear was that it would continue to exist. In a dead formality. His greatest fear was that the the Methodist movement would look on the outside like it was perfect, but on the inside it was empty, dead, rotting because they didn't have the Spirit, because they weren't hungering for Jesus. I have kind of a love hate relationship with mowing the grass. I've been mowing the grass since, I don't know, 10 years old, probably. It's my first job. I think I got paid $5 to spend two or three hours mowing the grass at my dad's church. Um, and through the years, that's been one of the things they do. The difference is now, whereas when I was younger, it was all by push mowing. Now I at least I have a riding mower with it. We have a pretty big yard. And it becomes a pain. You know, in the summer, you're mowing every three or four days. You know, I'm like, oh, good, it didn't rain. We don't have to mow again. What I love about it is it's one of the few times in my week that I am just sitting and I can listen to music. I don't get very many opportunities to do that. I don't take the opportunities to do that. But this is the one time where I'll put, get my iPod, my headphones, and listen to music while I'm mowing. And usually, for me at least, I don't just listen to it. I want to sing sing along with it. I I always thought no one could hear me until my children started saying, do you really have to sing that loud when we're out here? And then I realized that I could hear our neighbor, Kelly Hitchley, who, for the, just till they moved this summer, lived kitty-corner from us, and she would sing when she mowed her grass. The difference is, Kelly's a, you know... Classical musician, so she's singing opera. I'm singing hits from the '70s. Uh, She's doing La Boheme. I'm doing uh, Mandy by Barry Manilow or Chicago or something like that. I can get really wrapped up in the music. You know, I love to sing. I, I love getting into it, and so it's not unusual for me to be so enamored with the singing that I'm not paying enough attention to the mowing. And I have run over things that weren't supposed to be mowed. I have um, missed parts of the grass and had to go back. I have mowed things twice because I didn't, just wasn't paying attention. Not too long ago, I was out mowing and I had to stop the mower to fix something, move something out of the way so I could mow where it was. And I hop back on, you know, I'm listening to music, I'm hopping off, singing, getting it, putting it back on, I take off. And there came a pause in the music and I, re- I thought to myself, something doesn't sound quite right. It doesn't seem loud enough. And then I realized what the problem was. When I had hopped off the mower, of course, you you have to stop the blade or it won't let you get off. And when I got back on, I forgot to re-engage the blade. So for about five or six minutes, I had been mowing around the yard without the blades moving. I was having a great time. I was singing. It was wonderful. And there was a lot of noise and, uh, and, and there was a lot of movement, and I was using up a lot of gasoline, but there wasn't any grass being mowed at all. And I was telling someone that story a little bit ago, and they said, You know, that kind of sounds like what happens in the church. And they're right. You know, we got we all the activity, we do all the stuff, we make all the noise. And we can even look great, but we're empty. Because the Holy Spirit isn't getting into us because we're not hungering for Jesus. My prayer for us is that we will be a church that is hungering for Jesus. Waiting for Jesus in every way we can so that we will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And be transformed and be an agent of transformation in our world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit. We thank you for the church, and for the calling you've placed on us, and we ask today that you will help us to have such a hungering for Christ, a willingness to wait and to humble ourselves and to seek you that when you move with your Holy Spirit upon us, we're ready for that and we see more happen than we could possibly dream. Father, as we come today, we are reminded not only of our need for your Spirit, but the need for your Spirit at work in the whole world. We think of Paul and Jenny Christensen and their work in Southeast Asia and we pray that you would anoint their ministry and continue to bless them and help them in a difficult place, We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who struggle with the kind of life that is hard for us to imagine. Give them courage. Fill them with your spirit. Pour out your abundant blessing upon them. We pray, Father, for the needs that we represent. Some of us are grieving today, and we pray that you would comfort our hearts some of us are, are, are struggling with issues of health and, and some of us are, are wrestling with the future and feeling anxious. Father, in every circumstance, may we sense your spirit leading us, guiding us, helping us. Father, we thank you for your grace upon our lives, individually and corporately. And we pray that you will help us to be the people you've called us to be. Give us grace to acknowledge this is what we are, and the grace through your Spirit to begin to move toward what we are intended to be. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one who is risen and returned. Amen.
0: Stand as we sing. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of love.
2: ask you to do one thing this week, to commit to spending one minute, 60 seconds a day. If you want to do it more, that's up to you, but just a minimum of 60 seconds a day praying for God to give us a hunger for Jesus. And whatever other hungers we may have, that they would be secondary to having a hunger for Jesus as a church, as God's people in this place.